0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Amy DeZern of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, Dr. Dan Pagliaia of the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora, Colorado, and Dr. Amir Zayden of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. They will be discussing three real-life case challenges patients with myelodysplastic syndromes. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Cancer Conversations, Application of Individualized Treatment for MDS, Expert Guidance for Clinical Practice. For more information on our presenters, along with a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say.
1: It's a real pleasure to be with everyone today, and particularly with my uh, colleagues and friends, Amir and Amy. So we are uh, excited about this uh, presentation today, and also excited just to have a discussion about some of these really compelling cases. Because I think, as you'll see, the treatment landscape for MDS is very much in flux, and and I think uh, lots of new considerations to take into account. So. We're going to just start with this first case, an older man who presents with persistent fatigue. So this is a 69-year-old male, long-term fatigue for several years. And sure enough, after having, you know, we hear this often, by the time they get to us, they had had some complaints for a significant period of time before uh, routine blood work has been done. Lots of uh, older patients in particular, you know, there's a lot of other Potential explanations and also a lot chalked up to just the uh, quote-unquote normal ravages of aging. But this patient, sure enough, did have significant macrocytic anemia and neutropenia. And you can see the specific numbers here, particularly with that macrocytosis, but a profound neutropenia and a very significant um, anemia. And um, maybe, Amy, tell me, how often is fatigue the sort of presenting Complaint for for your patients with a new diagnosis.
2: I actually think more often than not, and exactly as you alluded to, sometimes it's attributed to other things within an individual human. But MDS usually has a profound fatigue associated with the disease, compounded by this depth of anemia, like your patient. So I'd say it's the vast majority.
1: Yeah, these counts now prompt a bone marrow biopsy, and you can see the. Uh, Summary here, hypercellular for age, which is uh, the vast majority of MDS patients. There's evidence of dysplasia in at least one of the lineages here, in this case, megakaryocytic lineage. We're going to come back to this uh, interesting finding of increased ring sideroblasts. There's no increase in blasts in the bone marrow, 0.5%, a normal karyotype. An erythropoietin level shows a little bit of an elevation there. And so our patient Uh, was started on an erythroid stimulating agent. And uh, Amir, I wonder, you know, in this um, patient, had this been your patient, newly diagnosed, older, predominantly anemic patient, would this have been your first move? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I think for this particular scenario, my first move
3: actually is usually to confirm the diagnosis because with low-risk MDS, especially in situations where you don't have an increase in the PLAS count and a normal karyotype, there are many things that could mimic MDS and are not in reality MDS. And actually I have even seen patients who were treated in, in the community setting for MDS who turned out to have copper deficiency or B12 deficiency. So I think in situations where there is no clear typical karyotypic abnormalities or no increase in the PLAS count, It's very important to look for other causes, nutrition deficiencies, B12, copper, autoimmune conditions, other medications, all of these things can cause dysplasia. So dysplasia does not equate MDS, and I think that's important to know. We are gonna talk about this, I think, later about using next-gen sequencing, but if the patient has some typical abnormality, also that helps support the diagnosis. So typically in a patient like this, where the erythropoietin level is below 200, and the patient is not needing a lot of transfusions. they are predicted to have a reasonably good chance of responding to erythropoiesis stimulating agents. So I would agree that this would be my first attempt. With the caveat that you mentioned here is that this patient has also a little bit of, not a little bit, actually significant neutropenia. His ANC is like 0.1%. So depending on the specifics of the clinical situation, there are patients who live with these neutrophil counts for months and years without significant infections. So if this is not causing the patient significant problems. I think ESA alone is reasonable. Is the patient having problems from the neutropenia? I might consider other therapies.
1: Those are all great points. Thanks, Amir. And uh, I typically have a low enthusiasm for success of an erythroid stimulating agent just because there are not that many patients that, you know, that really fit the criteria of sort of, uh, you know, significant anemia is the predominant problem and a low uh, native erythropoietin level. Most of these patients, their bone marrow is well aware that they're anemic and their kidneys are working very hard to make lots and lots of erythropoietin. And so giving more of a synthetic form uh, doesn't typically help. But this was one case where based on the numbers in the clinical scenario, you know, we thought we'd try. And, and sure enough, there was some effectiveness of this therapy, but it was fairly temporary. So after about six months, patients' uh, requirement for blood transfusions began to rise again. So back to something that a mayor just said, it is crucial when you're making this diagnosis to actually make the diagnosis. And as a mayor pointed out, there was nothing in the original profile uh, that I presented to you that sealed the deal that this was a clonal abnormality. In other words, that this was MBS and not some other nutritional or uh, other explanation. What I didn't tell you was that from the beginning, we had noted that this patient had an SF3B1 mutation, and that corresponds amazingly nearly 100% with the morphologic finding of ring sideroblasts. And so, Amy, do you want to just talk a, a little bit? I know you were involved or have been involved a lot in some of these discoveries. This correlation between a morphologic abnormality and a genetic mutation. How did that come to be a little bit and, and how do you think of this in clinical practice? What does this
2: mean? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but what you said is true. There's some nice publications that demonstrate that over 80% of patients in whom the morphologic ring sideroblasts you're going to find a splicing mutation, usually in SF3B1. And these genotype-phenotype correlations help guide us down specific therapeutic paths. And I think, honestly, one other pearl about making sure that we're working up a patient with anemia, cytopenia, is looking for a diagnosis of MDS correctly, is to order that iron stain specially so that you can see whether or not morphologically there's ring cereblasts. (laughs) And then if the molecular information recapitulates this, hopefully that's what you're looking for.
1: Yeah. And then, real quick, when you see this, does that have any sort of prognostic implications, any expectations for how your patient might do in the setting of having this finding?
2: Sure. So, I'll mention this case is a wee bit atypical, as usually people with this variant allele frequency of a splicing mutation might not be quite this neutropenic. But in patients with an isolated anemia that have this type of mutation in ring sideroblasts, we think of that as quite a favorable morphologic appearance, as well as molecular phenotype with low-risk disease, as you showed us with your IPSSR calculation, and we think that they're going to have a fairly long lifetime with their chronic anemia from lower-risk MDS.
1: Great. Thank you. So, this patient was indeed eligible for luspatercept, and um, this is based on the New England Journal of Medicine randomized clinical trial that included low-to-intermediate-risk MDS patients who were anemic with uh, significant transfusion needs and had either failed or were predicted to fail an erythroid-stimulating agent. And um, this patercept is a subcutaneous therapy given uh, about every three weeks. And in this particular patient, uh, they uh, did achieve transfusion independence. And this patient completed six doses of therapy with really very minimal side effects. And in the metalist study uh, that led to the approval of this therapy, uh, the finding was about 40% of patients uh, who were randomized to lose patercept did have a significant benefit with respect to uh, transfusion independence. And Amy, do you want to just tell a bit about, uh, about the unique mechanism through which we think this works?
2: Sure. So this Patercept is a really unique drug that has been around for a long time. It was originally looked at for other disorders, but it is able to raise the hemoglobin through late-stage erythroid maturation, which is different than our baseline erythropoiesis stimulating agents. And this MAD-2 mechanism and the ligand trap is actually quite well described in the lab, and certainly, laboratory investigators are looking for other avenues to use this in our patients.
1: Great, that's really helpful. Yeah, so right or wrong, I kind of have tended to think of this therapy as maybe not one that modifies the disease, but one that can certainly help improve transfusion uh, requirements or decrease those. And that may not be the way that to properly think about it uh, going forward. But uh, you know, there were some patients who evolved to AML on the study, which you would expect to happen you know, on, on any MBS study, but it really does have this unique novel mechanism of action. The uh, main treatment emergent adverse event in the uh, patercept arm was fatigue, uh, which as Amy said is a, a, a frequent uh, complaint of MBS patients in general. Um, I think most of us feel that this therapy is fairly well tolerated on there. What has been your experience with luspaterocept in the clinic? Is this side effect profile pretty consistent with what you actually see? Yeah, correct. And I actually like to highlight here
3: that this table, um, like the median duration of exposure for luspaterocept because there are more responses was around the double the time of placebo. So you are seeing like higher percentages. But I think once you adjust to the duration of exposure, a lot of those are not that different from placebo. And this has been actually my experience. I do think fatigue actually might be linked somewhat to the mechanism. I do see some fatigue, especially initially in the first couple of cycles. And I always wonder if this is something related to modulation of inflammation based on the mechanism of the action of the drug and maybe some cytokine minimal release, but this tends to um, resolve over time. And it generally improves, especially if the patient response and their hemoglobin goes up. I think one of the nice things with the drug is that it tends to result in responses relatively quickly if the patient is going to respond usually within the first couple of cycles that you see most of the responses. But I do, I think uh, it's one of the easier drugs to tolerate, especially when you consider the alternatives, like for a patient who is not responding to erythropoiesis stimulating agents, your other options is usually lenalidomide uh, or hypomethylating agent therapy and while those also are reasonably well-tolerated, they tend to have more, I think, side effects, uh, especially on the blood counts. Um, I think one interesting finding, actually, in, uh, and we published on, or presented some of that data, I think the publication is still under review. Some patients actually improve their other blood counts, like the neutrophil and the platelet count in some patients can improve. So I think that could be another
1: attraction in, in this particular patient. Those are great points. Thanks, Amir. Okay. Well, I'm going to turn it over to my friend, Amy DeZern. She's going to talk about the application of individualized treatment for MDS.
2: Thank you, Dan. So We'll transition to a little bit of a different case, but you'll see some similarities with the first. This is a 67-year-old retired gentleman who really is pretty active, spends a lot of time with his grandchildren. He has some baseline medical problems, hypertension, takes an oral hypoglycemic for diabetes, he actually had a lung cancer that was just surgically resected quite a while back. And when I met him, he had just recently become transfusion dependent with a hemoglobin of 7.8. He's also neutropenic, though not quite as much as Dan's patient at 580. And he's also thrombocytopenic at only 64,000. And so certainly anybody in the age bracket sort of over 60, usually over 50, with multiple cell lines down, we really should be thinking about a primary marrow disorder and evaluating in the bone marrow. Given that he was pancytopenic, we looked pretty efficiently. And unfortunately, he had elevated blasts at 8%, quite a bit of trilineage dysplasia, and also a karyotypic abnormality with trisomy 8. As I do in all my patients, I get concomitant diagnostic next-generation sequencing, And as you can see listed there, unfortunately, he also has a lot of adverse clonality. So exactly as Dan did with his patient, we calculated the IPSSR. I really use this almost exclusively now, but I think I'll ask Omar, do you have any other prognostic scoring systems that you calculate at the time of diagnosis for your patients?
3: No, I actually follow also the revised IPSS. I think when the patients land in the intermediate risk group, Sometimes I think more about other you know, risk stratification schemas, such as the WHO-based prognostic scoring system or the MD Anderson prognostic scoring system. I think the main issue with this one also, as you mentioned, it does not include the molecular characteristics. So I tend to kind of incorporate that in my thinking when I approach a patient.
2: I think that's a really good point. Unfortunately for this real human being, this was pretty clear cut. He got points for his Karyotypic abnormality, he has increased blasts, a low hemoglobin, a low platelet count, a low neutrophil count. So on all marks, he gets very high risk disease. And you compound that with his five separate molecular mutations. So this really is someone who's quite high risk. But I think even if he had not had perhaps increased blasts, but still had all that adverse clonality, I would have perhaps upstaged him by at least one IPSSR category in a patient such as this with. Very high risk disease, the outcomes are quite mediocre to even poor with standard of care therapies. And we find ourselves in a relative boon in the MDS space right now. This is the first time that we have four phase three clinical trials, all for the same patient population, which is high risk MDS, just as this patient had. Sort of feast or famine, and you might really think, how could we consider? which trial to offer somebody who is eager and amenable to this. And I think we have to really think about what we're offering patients with these randomized trials. And it certainly is not an easy decision to decide on referrals. I mentioned he was 67, he enjoys time with his grandchildren. I did offer him clinical trials, but there's really no right or wrong. And certainly there are patients in whom it's just not the right thing. However, standard of care with a hypomethylating agent was chosen for this patient based on his wishes. So if you had been his clinician, which of these hypomethylating agents would you choose?
1: I think the way I see this is azacitidine and dicitabine are equivalent and both very appropriate acceptable options. Azacitidine IV versus sub-Q is equivalent. And now we know that dicitabine IV versus PO is equivalent. And so um, if it's possible for me to provide uh, a PO, uh, an oral option for a patient like this, that would be my preference just because I, the convenience and impact and quality of life, et cetera, is more favorable. And so because I believe that decidabine and azacitobine in general are equivalent and that oral decidabine is equivalent to IV decidabine, I think that that would be a reasonable choice. I, I do want to highlight you know, I, I don't believe that is the case for oral azacitidine, and so I would not favor that.
2: But oral decitabine is an option, and I mentioned quite sincerely how engaged he was with his, his grandchildren and that he's back and forth a lot. And so, spending less time in an infusion chair in our clinic was incredibly important to him and something to think about. And this patient had sort of a circuitous path. We ultimately couldn't use the oral. His wife really wanted him to get IV azacitidine. He got his full six cycles and did go to transplant and so far is doing well. But he also had a really nice response with rise in his counts after four cycles of the hypomethylating agent because we stayed on time and pushed through. But I think he's a very good example of somebody who has higher risk disease we deemed him a transplant candidate because of his fitness. We didn't overjudge because of his age of sixty-seven, and we started active treatment with a hypomethylating agent on time, and then moved forward with an allogeneic transplant. So, with that, I'll tie up the higher risk case and turn it over to Dr. Zaidan to talk about a little bit of a different flavor of case with cytopenias and MDS. So, Almer.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Amy. So, this case. Um, similar patient basically in their 70s as you notice all patients are in late 60s or 70s which is typical really for mds so this is a 73 year old retired teacher and who also became a judge he was physically active when he came to to the clinic performance status of one he's a primary caretaker of his wife who has advanced dementia and he presented with fatigue and dyspnea on exertion he had history of hypertension, coronary artery disease, and he was a number of agents for these conditions. And he was found to have anemia and started needing actually quite a bit of transfusions. He had initial workup with uh, nutritional deficiencies and other causes for anemia that was negative. So he was referred to the hematology clinic. On evaluation, his white cell count was slightly reduced. AMC was 1,900. The hemoglobin was 8.2, and the platelet count was 90,000. So not super low uh, in terms of the counts, but clearly pancytopenic. The EPO level uh, was 680, so above 500. And a bone marrow was done, and that showed 8% plus. And he had an increase in the ring sidroplast and uh, the patient had a bone uh, on the bone marrow of course it had some erythroid dysplasia as well as megakaryocytic dysplasia and a karyotype was done and that was normal so similar to the other patients that you have just seen we plugged in the numbers the good risk karyotype uh, the blast count which was 8% the hemoglobin which was above 8 but below 10 the platelet count and the anc And when you add this together, you end up with a score of four and a half, uh, which puts the patient in the intermediate uh, risk group for the revised IPSS. So maybe I can start with Dan. Dan, how do you approach patients who have an intermediate risk group on the revised IPSS?
1: Yeah, you know, this is tough. Um, I think, you know, to me, if a patient has increased blasts, anything over, over 5%, then you know I, I think that an intermediate risk score on IPSSR isn't terribly predictive of outcomes. I think those are patients that are kind of marching along to an AML regardless of what the other data might say. So that has a lot more weight to me than it probably does within the IPSS. And then also you know the the results of the next gen sequencing, knowing what mutations are at play, uh, is also very helpful here in an intermediate uh, risk case as we said before that has not been incorporated into the IPSSR but many of the those mutations this, the prognostic status are is well known and so uh, adding that into the sort of uh, prognostic uh, assessment i think is very helpful for intermediate risk patients
3: yeah and i actually take a similar approach by considering the mutations and the blast count and i also I think one useful approach is looking at the specific score within the intermediate risk group, so there has been some studies that show that patients who score three and a half tend to behave a little bit more indolently while patients who score four and four and a half they tend to behave more in a more aggressive way in terms of the m d s so there has been a recommendation to treat these as a high risk m d s so this patient had a revised i p s s score of four and a half, so I discussed with him and uh, we decided basically to proceed with azacitidine. As Amy mentioned, we did discuss bone marrow transplantation. However, because he was the sole caregiver of his wife with advanced dementia, uh, the patient uh, was very hesitant about undergoing transplant and he wanted to stay with HMA as long as he was responding for it. And he actually achieved a complete response and has responded for close to a year but then his blood counts has worsened, and we repeated the bone marrow biopsy at that point. I have to mention here that we did the bone marrow at the time of uh, response, and his blast count has reduced, and this is why he was on CR. So now he has 11% blast in his marrow. So Amy, how would you approach uh, the situation at this point?
2: Well, I feel somewhat sad for him. This would be a secondary hypomethylating agent failure situation, which really happens to all patients. I think, honestly, it's a matter of when, not if, because it's not intended as a cure. But this is the point in time where I talk about other chemotherapies, what standard of cares there are available. I talk about transfusional support alone. I don't talk about transplant at this point because we can't take somebody who's no longer responding to a therapy with 11% blast straight to a transplant. And then I emphasize clinical trials because this really is where there's a dearth of therapies and we can improve by having some novel agents.
3: And all of these are very reasonable options. I think compared to the first two cases, unfortunately in this situation, there is really no FDA approved um, treatment for after HMA failure for patients with high-risk MDS. As Amy mentioned, the survival after HMA failure tend to be quite grim. It's somewhere between four to six months in most patients. And one actually strategy that I see often in the community, largely because there is no approved treatments in the setting, is switching the agent. So I see patients who are on azocytidine who get switched to dicitabine or the other way around. And this is something I strongly discourage uh, because I think the data, as you can see here, indicates that approaches does not really lead to good responses. The only situation in which I would switch between the HMA is in is a situation in which the HMA is stopped because of issues related to tolerance, potentially, or if we want to switch from IV to sub-Q, for example, or the other way around, but not for clear resistance. So I would not do an HMA switch. What would we do? Uh, I think, as Amy mentioned as well, is that the main, I think, uh, point I usually try to address is whether we are trying to go on a curative path. So this patient, he's 69, he's in relatively good performance status. While he did refuse transplant originally, I would still bring up the subject here because I think anything short of a transplant, you cannot expect any potential for long-term survival. And you can see here in in, in this uh, retrospective analysis that patients who had transplant were the patients who have done the best. Of course, there's some selection bias here. But clearly, I think um, trying to aim for transplant in a patient with a potential curative approach makes more sense in most patients. While if the approach is not going to be curative, then other strategies along the lines of what Amy mentioned, such as best supportive care, can be used. And HMA failure has been a very difficult setting to treat patients, uh, largely because we still don't fully understand the mechanism of action of HMAs and what mediates um, failure to their uh, activity. So rational development of therapies have been quite difficult in this setting. Also, many patients with MDS do not have targeted or targetable mutations compared to ML. In AML, you have a lot of patients who have flit 3 IDH mutations, which can be targeted for therapies. While in MDS, those are a small minority of patients So I often like refer to HMA failure setting as the black hole of treatment of MDS. And I think this is a strong argument of why you should try to optimize your frontline therapy as much as possible, ideally by going to clinical trials with combinations, so that you are trying to minimize or delay the situation as much as possible.
0: Thank you very much to our expert panel and thanks to you the listeners for joining us. As a reminder, view the full program Application of Individualized Treatment for MDS, Expert Guidance for Clinical Practice. On the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.